Well, welcome to Graceway Baptist Church and our Sunday School lesson for July 18th. Boy, time is marching on, isn't it? And I uh, appreciate you taking the time to uh, tune in and to listen. For those of you who are our Sunday School teachers and you're listening to the audio, uh, we do this just to be kind of a help and an encouragement to you and also to give you a clue what I'm thinking. It's always hard to just take a, a bare outline and, um, and understand what the author intended with that. I found that out when I first came here 25 years ago. Can you believe that? And uh, my father-in-law had written a bunch of Sunday school lessons and I had the bare outline. And uh, for a while, I don't remember how long, but quite a while, I would just take his lessons and then try to make these recordings. And there were so many times when I would look at a, at a point in the outline and I would think, I have no idea what he was talking about. And uh, so that's when I started writing my own. And uh, as clear as they might be in my mind, you know how it is, you might read it and look and go, where in the world did he get that? And so these uh, audio recordings are just to kind of help you know what I'm thinking. I don't expect you to teach it the same way that I do. In fact, when I teach my class, I don't always do it the same way that I teach it like I am right now. Uh, sometimes somebody has a question. Sometimes somebody has a comment. Sometimes somebody chases a rabbit. It does happen sometimes. And, um, you know, we, we do it that way. Sometimes my class is very chatty. Sometimes you can hardly get anything out of them. It just depends on how they're doing that day and the subject matter and all of that. So teach the lesson, but teach it in the context of your class, of your age group and the, the, the needs and the situation that they are in. And uh, you don't have to parrot me. You don't have to go word for word or anything like that at all. I just want you that when we finish this today, that you might have an understanding of it and grasp it so that you can take it then and teach your class in the way that you need to. So you've got uh, uh, a lot of freedom here. And for those of you that are watching because you missed uh, Sunday school, uh, thank you for doing that because that keeps you caught up with what the rest of us are doing or have done, I guess I should say. And um, a lot of good, lot of good material here. And uh, just in case you're new to this, we've been going through for a while the New City Catechism. And uh, a catechism is basically a question and answer type thing to learn uh, theology and doctrine, that type of thing. There are a lot of good ones out there. Charles Spurgeon, um, I can't remember the name of it, but he had one that he used with his church. It was particularly used with children in the old days. And there's, of course, the Westminster Catechism that a lot of people are familiar with and uh, things like that. But this is a new one. Tim Keller put it together. He doesn't do a bad job for a Presbyterian, does he? And uh, <coughs> pardon me, gives us a chance to uh, talk about some things that we know, but do we really know those things? Um, I've caught myself at a lot of times 
looking at a subject or having a subject introduced, and my first thought is, well, I already know that. And then somebody says, well, what, is it, what does it mean? And then I have trouble explaining it. You know, all that reveals is I didn't know it as well as I thought I knew it. And I think a lot of times in churches like our church, there are a lot of people that there are things that we assume that we know and that we understand, but we can't really explain it. And here's the deal. If you can't explain it, you probably don't know it at least as well as you think you do. And so it does us good to think about these things. I hope in your class that there's some discussion and some growth, that there are some people who are learning things they've never heard before. There are some things that are remembering things that they have thought about in times past, but it kind of needs to be refreshed. It kind of needs to have some light and fresh air put on it. And so as we do this, uh, maybe even we're better equipped to pass the faith on to those who are coming after us, which is an important part of discipleship. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul commands Timothy to take the things that he learned from Paul and then pass them on to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's an ongoing process of all of this uh, generation after generation after generation and if we don't talk about these things, they're probably not going to get passed on. So with that said, <coughs> excuse me, battling allergies this week. And uh, apparently I don't have much of an immune system anymore with this heart failure stuff. So anyway, I'd appreciate your prayers. The question is, what does Christ's death redeem? I think the easy answer would be, you know, for most of us, well, sinners, us, you know, save people are redeemed. But um, their answer goes into a little bit more that I think is worthy of thinking about. Here it is. Christ's death is the beginning of the redemption and renewal of every part of fallen creation as he powerfully directs all things for his own glory and creation's good. Now, I want to ask you, have you ever really thought about redemption in that way, redeeming all things in fallen creation? Do you think about the plan, the redemptive plan of God in only taking you and people you love to heaven? That's a pretty... Um, maybe the word would be narrow or limited view of redemption. And I'm afraid that sometimes if that's all we think about, then we don't really think about people that we don't know. And yet the Bible tells us that we're to be concerned about the redemption of people we don't even know. Have you ever uh, read the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20? And we're to go into all of the world. And so you and I are commanded to care about people that we've never met and probably will never meet until we get to heaven. You and I are to be concerned about the nations of the world. Whenever you uh, watch the news on TV or read about it on the internet or in the newspaper, do you ever stop and think about the events that you see going on in other lands, in other nations, in other people groups, 
maybe even uh, other religions, those involve people that you and I are commanded to care about and to take the gospel to those people. William Carey, the one who is the, considered the father of the modern missions movement, made the statement that if we were to think about going down into a well to rescue somebody who had fallen in, he said not everybody can go down the well. Some people hold the rope. And I want to just challenge you in terms of missions. Maybe you'll never go overseas. Maybe you're not called to do that. But you ought to care and you ought to hold the rope. Praying for missions, praying for missionaries, and also praying for the people in these other places. Right now, I would encourage you to pray for Cuba. People are gathering in the streets and they're carrying American flags because no matter what you might think or anyone else might think or say, the standard for freedom in the world today is our country. We are very blessed to be born here and to live here and to have the freedoms that we enjoy, which are, by the way, God-given, not government-given. And our government, according to our Declaration of Independence and Constitution, uh, the government is supposed to acknowledge, respect, and protect God-given freedoms. And so as we think about that and think about people all over the world that look to us, that want to come here, we can see a lot of times only the negatives, and there are a lot of negatives right now, but there are so many positives that we have. We ought to be thankful and we ought to be praying, of course, for our nation. And uh, we ought to be thinking about the nations of the world and how this affects them. I want believers in Cuba to be able to gather in church gatherings like we do without being afraid of being arrested. I want people in Iran, for example, that come to know the Lord Jesus to be able to proclaim the truth of the gospel without fear of imprisonment or uh, being beheaded or something like that or being um, alienated from their families or exiled. Um, I want that for everybody. And so the scripture teaches us that we are to be a part of the going into all of the nations of the world to proclaim the gospel and then to baptize them and teach them the things that the Lord uh, taught us. And so when we think about redemption, getting back to the original point, I think we need to widen it and broaden it out. In fact, what we're going to cover today is going to really broaden it out because God's plan is a whole lot bigger than just taking us four and no more to heaven. This is about redeeming everything that he has created. Now, the scripture we're going to look at today is Colossians 1, uh, verses 19 and 20. And it says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. That's the point of emphasis. To reconcile to himself all things. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever considered what it means, what the all things are there that are being referred to? And 
Paul goes on to say, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross to reconcile all things to himself. Now let's be real clear. This is not teaching universalism. This is not teaching that people in hell get a second chance or anything like that. He's not going to reconcile the devil or demons. That's not part of the all things. So what are these all things that he's talking about? And um, the first point we want to talk about today is that God will redeem us completely. God will redeem us completely. We talk sometimes about God is going to uh, save us. And when we do that, we say, oh, another soul was saved. Now, if you mean by soul, a person was saved, then that would be true. But if you are thinking about the fact that just this immaterial part of me gets saved and goes to heaven, uh, that's certainly true, but it's not the whole story. I uh, don't always enjoy uh, doing funerals, but I see a tremendous ministry whenever I get to do a funeral, whenever I'm privileged to do that. Don't do a whole lot of them. Um, we're very blessed that we don't have that many uh, members pass away during the year. Some churches have an awful lot. Uh, I knew of one guy who did about one a week, and I'm thankful we don't have to do that. But when I do, uh, I like to remind people that the service that we have is, is not a send-off to the person who died. Uh, some people kind of think that. They think we ought to say some mystical, magical words over them and help them get into heaven. Well, absent from the body, present with the Lord, the Bible says. So as soon as they draw their last breath, if they were saved, they were escorted into the presence of God. And uh, the funeral is not to give them a head start or an introduction or anything like that. I like to make that clear. The second thing is sometimes at funerals, you know, we talk about all of the good things that uh, this person did. And uh, that's good and bad. Because on one hand, it's not the place to air out dirty laundry, is it? It is a place to talk and to remember and to uh, comfort people by uh, remembering the honorable and good things about this person's life. Uh, the third thing is that uh, we want to talk about Christ and we want to talk about his redemption. And when I do that, I like to include, especially when we're at the cemetery, that uh, according to scripture, God is not through with this body that's going to be committed to the earth. The Bible tells us that, Paul put it this way to the Corinthians, this mortality, this body that we have here, is compared to an earthly tabernacle, a tent, a temporary <coughs> residence, we might say, and that this mortal must put on immortality. And he talks about an event that's going to take place when we're all changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. First Thessalonians 4 talks about it too. And the reason I like to do that is because sometimes it feels like when you go to a cemetery that there's just a, 
a sign up there that says this is the end. I mean, we could even, no pun intended, call it a dead end, couldn't we? This is final. This is awful. And people go to the cemetery and they see the gravestone that marks the name of their loved one and the date they were born and the date that they died. And oh, it just seems so hopeless and so complete, doesn't it? God gives us this, these verses in the Bible that tell us that God doesn't just save the soul. He saves all of us. And he's got a plan to redeem every part of us, even this body. Now, it doesn't matter whether it's cremated or not. It doesn't matter whether it was embalmed or not. It doesn't matter whether it has been preserved in any way. You can go to Red Square in Moscow today and you can see Vladimir uh, uh, Lenin's body uh, there in Red Square and he died a long, long time ago. Uh, it doesn't matter whether the body is intact or not. It doesn't matter uh, what that situation is. God is going to redeem that body. The verse that we'll look at is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 23 and 24. Listen to what Paul says. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept <coughs> blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. And so your soul is saved and also he gives you a new glorified body. The grave and death are conquered and they must be destroyed. Now remember when you read the book of Revelation, it does say that death is the last enemy to be destroyed. And so even though it's when we die that we go to heaven, God does not consider death to be a friend. Death is the result of sin. Death is a result of the treason that Adam committed against God and that we participate in both through our nature and also by the choices that we make. And so we've got to be redeemed body, soul, and spirit, Paul said, and that's what's going to happen. So thank the Lord he doesn't forget about any part of us one of these days. Now the people in heaven right now, they don't have their glorified body yet. Some people say that, at funerals and other times like that, but that would not be uh, accurate. But they will get it one of these days and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet them in the cloud. <coughs> Excuse me. Secondly, God will redeem everything that he created. In Romans chapter 8, 21 and 22, it says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
I don't know if uh, you have thought much about nature and the fact that so much of nature, as beautiful and wonderful as it is, it's somewhat uncooperative. I remember when I was in Tuttle, we had several people there that uh, farmed wheat. My chairman of the deacons there would meet with me every Sunday morning early in our prayer chapel to pray for the services. And he had about uh, 2,500 acres. It's a lot of acres in wheat. And uh, I can remember when we would be meeting, I'd say, boy, it's a beautiful day. And he would say, yeah, but if we don't get some rain pretty soon, my wheat is going to be in trouble. Other times we'd meet and it'd be raining, maybe a soft, gentle rain. And I'd say, boy, isn't this rain wonderful? And he goes, yeah, but if it keeps up, it's going to rot out the wheat crop. And uh, I used to laugh at that and I told him one time, you're just never pleased, are you? And uh, we kind of laughed about it. But I thought about how much the environment seems to work against farming. All that we do is to work to make something happen that nature can't destroy. And if it's wheat, you know, a hailstorm can come in at the wrong time. Or sometimes uh, there can be a late freeze and uh, it messes up the wheat crop, things like that. Too much rain, too little rain, obviously. And uh, I thought that's basically true of every part of life. This is why we have air conditioning, by the way. Trying to overcome the curse of the, <coughs> excuse me, of the environment because it's too hot and it's miserable. It's why we need heat in the wintertime, especially last winter when it got so uh, stinking cold. This is why it's difficult to raise livestock. There's always a disease. There's always a predator, uh, a scarcity of pasture or something like that. I mean, everything is working against us. That's why God told Adam, you're going to eat your bread by the sweat of your brow. In other words, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be work and you're going to have to overcome the environment. You know what Paul is promising us? There's a day and an age coming when God is going to fix everything that the curse has broken. Now, as humans, we're redeemed, of course, by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But understand this, that even though we suffer under sin, so does nature. It groans under the curse of Adam's sin. And one day, one day we're promised that this curse will be reversed. And what a glorious day that will be. Uh, thirdly, God will redeem everything that is touched by sin. Now, it's easy for us to look around at this world and see the sin. We see riots in the streets. We see uh, political assassinations. We see law enforcement being shunned and uh, shot at in some cases. We can see all of those kind of things. We see kids getting bullied in school. Not even uh, those type of things, the violence and, and, and all that we see, but even the lies that are told the uh, things that are just not true. And then we see um, things that are just incomprehensible, like abortion on demand and those type of things. That's easy to see. 
But I want you to um, look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. And I want you to consider something with me. It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You know, we know that the earth has been scarred by sin and we know that one day it's going to be destroyed. But did you know that the Bible also says that God is going to make a new heaven as well as a new earth? Now that intrigued me and I thought, why in the world would he be making a new heaven? Then I thought about it. Heaven was the place where Lucifer and his angels rebelled against God. And so even the place where God dwells right now and where those who have already died are, are dwelling with him, the Bible promises one day he's going to make all things new, a new heaven and a new earth. And in this new heaven and new earth, we'll finally be on an earth where there's no devil, no demons. Everybody on it is going to be saved. And we're going to have a new heaven where Lucifer didn't rebel, where Lucifer didn't draw away a third of the angels after him. And that's going to be an amazing thing. If you think this earth and this world and the universe, if you look through a telescope, is beautiful, it's been scarred by sin. Can you even begin to imagine what the new heaven and the new earth is going to look like, what the new universe will look like when it is remade by God and untouched by sin. That's why the Bible says, I hath not seen and ear hath not heard, nor hath it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Revelation 21 verses 1 through 3, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place, literally the tabernacle of God, is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Perfect, unrestrained, unhindered fellowship in a sinless environment. What a day, glorious day that will be. That's our future. And number four, God is going to redeem everything permanently permanently. See, when God created the earth, he looked down and he said it was good. And after he created humans, he said, it's very good. And Adam and Eve lived in paradise, but not for long. We don't know how long it was, but it wasn't long. And since then, everything has been cursed, right? Well, this 
is going to be a redemption that is not going to be just for an era, just for a period of time, but it is going to be a permanent thing. Going again to uh, the apocalypse, to Revelation 22, verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And so when it says nothing will be accursed, not then and not ever after that, that's going to be something that we haven't experienced. Everything that we touch right now is affected by the curse, isn't it? And God said, one of these days, it's all going to be made new, and that newness is going to be a permanent thing. We're not going to go through this again. You see, the creation of earth and the creation of animals and plants and humans and stars and all of that type of thing, there was a plan in all of that. None of the fall caught God off off guard because Christ was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, before it was actually needed. He was already considered to be slain. That plan was already in place. So when Adam and when Eve sinned against God, God was not caught off guard, not surprised, and he didn't have to scramble to come up with a plan. He already knew, and the plan was already in place. But when all of this stuff we've been talking about takes place, the new heaven and the new earth, there's not going to be any time to where people fall or when Satan tempts people or anything. That's over, and that's done with, and it is a permanent Uh, wonderful redemption. It's what theologians call the final state, the final state. And so think about it. If you are saved, you've got a wonderful future ahead of you. In addition to being able to go to heaven when you die, that's a wonderful thing and far more than we ever deserve. And I would never want to diminish that. But just like God, he gives us this and so much more, and the half has not even, the Bible says, been told. And so whatever your imagination is about heaven and about the new heaven and the new earth and the redemption of all of these things and the kingdom of God even reigning on earth and the curse being reversed and even going on into the final state, Here's the thing that I can say about it. I don't know what you imagine, and your imagination may be so much better and might even be more sanctified than mine. But I do know this, whatever we can put together in all of our minds, it still doesn't come close to what God has planned for those who love him. Hallelujah. Praise his holy name. And that's something that we all look forward to. Even the saints in heaven now look forward to these same things that we've talked about today. So what does redemption cover? Not just our souls, but it covers everything that touches us and everything that has been a part of our life. The Lord is going to make all things new. Thank you for taking time to watch this. I hope it's blessed you, fed your soul, and given you some things to think about, some things to meditate upon, some things to pray about. And I hope that it's given you a reason 
to love the Lord Jesus even more than you did when we started this. God bless you, and thanks again. Have a great week.